again. Naturally. It's just this logic, isn't it, where like he, he sort of explains it through the book as if like obviously this to this, so A to B to Z equals firing <laughs> furry creatures from a catapult. Just what on earth yeah. is this wasp factory? Um, if it turns out to be a sort of Santa's workshop type place for putting together little wooden wasps, I will be seriously disappointed. It's a it's a messed up world. Hello and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And it's part two of our read-through of Ian Banks's disturbing book, The Wasp Factory, in which, so far, we've <laughs> we've had animals, heads on spikes, um, the and casual piss, mur- And piss, don't forget that, they oh, were, that, that he was weeing on them as well, let's... Uh, Thank you, thank you for for reminding me of that. Let's not the, undersell this, Matt. Let's <laughs> let's do this in all of its glory. Yeah, the massacre of a field of rabbits and the casual murder of a child, and we're only three chapters in. I I I, I beg to differ there, Matt. The casual murder of has it been two? No, it's been it was one child. Sorry, I'm getting confused with this week's <laughs> this week's material. You're getting ahead there's of a, yourself. There's oh yeah, there's there is as you may have gathered quite a lot of child murder in this book and and mm. to be honest with you they do all tend to blur into a single horrifying act of violence i've found but i don't know if, if that's your experience yeah so you know you, you know you know what you're going to get with shark live royal podcast we uh we take a book and we try and find the lightheartedness in it. You know, we take a bit of a knockabout read through. So we fancied a real challenge this time, which is why we're trying to find, we're trying to find the uh, you know the frothy uh, light comedy in Ian Banks's The Wasp Factory, and it does take some finding. So <laughs> I think it's because we felt the need to set ourselves a challenge. So we did Goosebumps a couple of weeks ago, and that was enormous fun. But it was that was low hanging fruit, and you and me, Matt. We do not eat exclusively low-hanging fruit. No, no, we set ourselves challenges. <laughs> okay, then. Let's move on, then. So, so today, if you're reading... One, the good thing about The Wasp Factory is it's split into clear chapters. So if you're reading along with us this week, we're going from the chapter called The Bomb Circle as far as a chapter called Space Invaders. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we may as well just dive straight in. We're, we're right in the middle at the moment. We did a little intro last week. We'll do the reviews next week. So if you want to send a review of the Wasp Factory into us, uh, just send it to sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. That's sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. We've really got to start doing the Facebook page as well. We, we have. Made f- we, we, we made must. a Facebook page about three years ago and then didn't look at it since. <laughs> Okay, so the bombs, the the bomb circle. This starts with um, a little, um, little, little bit from from Frank. How he says that he feels like his head and his mind is a bit like a city. So um, you know, he, he's he basically the the things he decides to do are on the advice of the sort of people who are in charge, and there are also sort of other voices in his head telling him other things. Is yeah. this absolutely crazy, or is it kind of something that? In a way, everyone has a bit. That is an excellent question, and I sort of feel like the answer to that is both. Because on the yeah. one hand, what he's describing there is almost as if Ian Banks has just gone for like the top three um, uh, kind of uh, neuro, uh, like neurological um, 
diagnoses that happen and just kind of decided to try and put them all into a single character. So last week we had behavior which you might identify as being autistic. This week we had behavior which which seems to speak of almost multiple personalities, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, what's a dissociative personality disorder? That's the one. Um, but at the same time, this is an accurate way of talking about how a lot of people do things, right? How a lot of people think oh, well, okay, you know, I feel like this, I don't feel like this, this voice is saying this, this voice is saying this, and I'm going to choose which one to pay attention to. Now, happily, most of us, I hope, I assume, don't have voices in our heads going, you should kill him, definitely kill him. Oh, yeah, right, he's a wrong one. Obviously, women are awful, hate women. Right, the, the, the particular voices that see he seems to have in his head are fairly assertive and dare I say, not completely benevolent. But um, I'm not sure that it's a million miles out of line to describe people as thinking this way. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite a a famous uh, sort of idea called the the, the bicameral mind, which is what sort of touched on this. I I sort of picked this up from Westworld, actually. Are you watching Westworld? Nice! I am not yet, no. But I mean, I think we might have to do it. It was a a book, wasn't it? I think we might need to go back and do Westworld. Oh, that's a good idea. We could do it, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, the, the idea that, um, you know, you do have like this, like you, you, you don't literally hear voices in your head, but you, you know, you hear something that almost doesn't feel like you. There's like what you're doing and then there's your own voice telling you to do stuff. Um, kind of. Does that does that happen? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just so I crazy. Did. But kind of, uh, yeah, hopefully you know what I mean. Um, I, yeah, yeah. And and sort of the apparently, like way back in our evolution or um, thousands of years ago, so not that far back, um, people when they were first hearing that put it down to sort of an outside voice, like the voice of God or something, and um, uh. and it's changed over the years. Obviously, it's quite it's quite a weird little just a little thing. If you want to have a little read up on it, and there you go, bicameral mind. Go you see, never look. Y- you go into this saying lightweight knockabout and then you've introduced to me a concept that I've literally never heard of and a reading list from, from okay. the highs the lows to the highs here on Charlotte Love Royal isn't it <laughs> yeah okay so let's <laughs> let's get right back into this into the the plot then so he so he does this catapult naming ceremony he's got a new catapult does his ceremony um runs over to this place called the bomb circle um and this gets him thinking about his second murder we heard last uh, last week about how he dispatched of Blythe, the bully, um, aged five, let's remember. That, that's the age of the murderer. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> I went and looked that up, by the way. I went and looked that up because he... So this, so he's told us that he's done three murders, right? And we've heard about mm. one of them already. Um, and uh, it, the, the way he did it was he, he, as a five-year-old, managed to capture an adder poisonous snake the only poisonous snake in the uk um managed to capture it and then put it inside his cousin's false leg so that this thing bit him and he died do you know the last time that there was a recorded instance of somebody dying from an adder bite in the uk um when was this written like 80 something Is that <laughs> on, 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 on a scottish island <laughs> <laughs> i'd love it if he'd just been like opens the newspaper one morning Oh, that'll do. Yeah, cracking. Brilliant. No, it was the late 1800s. Like, 
Adabites. I mean, they might they're a bit difficult for kids, sort of thing, but they're not super poisonous <laughs> at all. This is like this is, is like that, putting is is that, um, is that the public information broadcast. Uh, yeah, I yeah. Once kids. again, we're here to help, <laughs> eh? No, I mean, like, so where's this coming from? Because it feels plausible because it is the only poisonous animal in the whole of the United Kingdom. But at the same time, there's a bit of me that's like, well. That is a little bit like making it he was savaged by a, a rabbit, which which he did as well. Fuck. So this is like making actually fairly factually ordinary and not at all threatening things into the matter of a horror book. That's what he's doing here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just playing. He's just playing with you. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we'll see if you find this um, this uh, murder more realistic. So um, he, he dispatches with his younger brother, Paul, yes. now Let's. five, uh, yeah, um, because it's quotes he needs, he wants to be rid of the dog, um, but we'll we'll sort of get more on that later on. But basically, him and his little brother go on this little walk along the beach after a storm's been um, raging across the island. It's obviously it's moved a lot of sand around, and it's unearthed this unexploded bomb. Um, so, uh, like so. You do. Like you do, Frank says to his little brother, "You know what you should do. This this thing's a bell, and if you give it a good old whack, it'll make a loud noise." I mean, I suppose he's kind of telling the truth with the latter part there. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the whole truth. Um, so he says, "Yeah, give Omitting it a whack." Omitting certain salient details. <laughs> yeah. So he runs off to the um, to the sand dunes, and then um, Paul starts whacking this bomb. Um, he, he he's, he's sort of hitting it again and again because he's not hitting it in the right place, and then finally he hits it on the nose and it explodes, and that's the that's the end of that's the end of Paul. Jeez. <laughs> so, uh, Dave, thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, this is an eight-year-old who apparently has a fairly good understanding based only on an education received from a father who apparently habitually lies to him about what happens with unexploded bombs and how easy it is to blow them up. So there you go. So, yeah, another another unlikely, for, for many reasons, um, murder and method of murder there. But yeah. he said, uh, Frank says he acted all upset to avoid getting in trouble. He wasn't that upset, really. Um, he then wanders... <laughs> wanders back to the house. He, the, the weird thing, the sort of fascinating thing about Frank with these murders is just the breezy way he retells them and his thoughts yeah. on them, like, you know, as if he's talking about, you know, um, just, I suppose, like, if he's talking about throwing away, like, a cuddly toy or something, you know, I wasn't that bothered, you know. Yeah. Just something that happens. It's just so, so casual, isn't it? Yeah, very much. And, and you know, I'm, I'm obviously making light of it because the actual image that's presented is fairly horrifying and I'm trying to avoid dwelling mm. on it, I suppose. Yeah, but yeah. it's 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 true that he recounts these things in a way that I, I genuinely can't decide whether this is a realistic depiction of some kind of psychosis or if it's... If it's just as mad as it seems, if it's just <laughs> as uh, just as un, un, untethered and unhinged as it seems, because um, mm. you're right, he kills his brother, and he kills his brother based on a, a sequence of reasoning which doesn't. I mean, we'll find out why he thinks it's necessary and so on, but the reasoning that brings him to it is pretty 
macabre and pretty flawed. And the idea that there's a complete lack of any kind of like moral boundary on this kid's head where he thinks, oh yeah, and obviously killing is what's going to happen. And then the kind of cold-heartedness with which he describes how he got away with it, right, mm. is, is just... Yeah, I mean, it's it's breathtaking in a really horrible way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, see, <laughs> he goes back to the house and um, the, this old lady who comes around to deliver the food, Mrs. Clamp, is there. And she's putting stuff in the freezer and he just wanders over and just thinks, you know what, I could just shove her in the freezer. And then he thinks, ah, oh, no, I won't. And again, it's just so casual. It's like, shall yeah. I shove her in the freezer? Nah, I don't think I will. And it, yeah, and it doesn't seem to be that he's like, no, that would be a bad... No. He just kind of goes, eh, whatever. <laughs> you know, you get the impression that if the wind blew a different way and he decided to believe something different about rabbits that morning, that he would have done it. Mm. And it's and it's the weirdest thing of all to me in this is that somehow I still find this an interesting protagonist. He's acting yeah. in a way that's completely unpredictable, and that I don't, I definitely don't care about his well-being or his continued success in whatever it is he's trying to do. But still, mm. somehow the way it's described is readable, and you're engaged in it. I, weird, crazy, wonderful writing, actually, but weird. Yeah, I think it's an interesting aspect of his character that it's it's probably all wrapped up in this struggle for power that he has with his dad as well. That it's the oh, ultimate feeling of power, isn't it? That he because he's absolutely no compunction about killing people, then yeah. suddenly he feels very powerful because he could do it at any moment. He just chooses not to. That's very interesting. Yeah, because he does seem to be very proud of his self control. Like he mm. makes decisions in quite a dispassionate way about what he what he does and what he's like and what he's for. Um, and and he does seem to be very proud of kind of almost ruling his mind with an iron fist, which in a way is even scarier because he can't say, oh, you know, it was one of the other voices in here made me do it. What it is is him being, him consciously deciding that this is the best way to go out of all the options that have been presented to him by his fairly diseased mind. It's just so odd. Hmm. Yeah, speaking of odd, um, Mrs. Clamp stays for tea, and uh, they have fish, and uh, he spends the uh, Frank spends the the meal sort of trying to arrange the fish bones into a human skeleton, and ends up sticking a little pea on the head. Ye um, gods! I mean, that's that is a, a flipping social services intervention waiting to happen, <laughs> isn't it? Just just imagine somebody walking past the back of his plate, and they look down, and you see that he spent half an hour arranging fish bones into a human skeleton. You'd be. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, do you want to do you want to just come come with me and, and and talk to some some people, some quite a few people in in a fairly secure environment? Would that be all right? Yeah, just come and come and have a chat. Come and have a quick chat. Don't take anything sharp with you. I'll carry your keys. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The um. The, he doesn't get carried off. He just goes into town to uh to the Coldham Arms, uh, the pub that bears his family name. Uh, with his friend Jamie, who's a dwarf, and uh, the they go in seeing a band called fantastically the Vomits. Um, <laughs> it's a punk band, and it's, it's quite pre- it's quite sort of uh, predictive as what's going to happen later on as well. 
Yeah, yeah, very, very much. <laughs> and um, I love this. I love, I love any. Um, Ian Banks wrote another book called Espadare Street, which is which is all about a kind of nineteen seventies era rock star. And I just, for some reason, there's something about the way Ian Banks writes about this era of music, where I'm like, wow, that's such a strange culture to have existed like i i know about it obviously but just the idea of going to a gig where the way people show their appreciation is by spitting on the stage like if that i'm sure that does happen now but if it happened now it would be like oh yeah i know yeah you read you read that book about what punk rock is supposed to be about you know what i mean like so the like just something about this scene really tickled me about like people doing this sincerely um which I suppose is the difference between growing up in the 70s and growing up in the 90s. But um, The Vomits, what a name for a band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. And it, and it go, goes on, um, so they have the, uh, they have the gig. It, uh, towards the end of the night, um, sort of, he's, Frank's really drunk in a corner and uh, Jamie on his shoulders is talking to this, uh, this girl. And... Frank is, I mean, I say he's, he's really, really drunk, um, as in he's about to throw up. Um, and I just thought this was, this next couple of pages is a really great description of what it's like when you're just horrendously drunk. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, it's re- <laughs> this, is, this is one of my favourite parts of the book. It's really well, I think it's really well written because it really captures that sort of feeling, I think. Yeah. And I kept, it was interesting because I kept waiting for it to have some sort of horrible plot denouement. <laughs> Until I realised, yeah, like you were saying, just a couple of pages in, I was like, oh no, this is just the best description of being heavily drunk I've ever read in my entire life. Like, it, oh, it, it took me back, Matt, took me back to a, a simpler and more innocent time. Yeah, I mean, he describes being sick as the technical yawn, which I think is quite good. That's amazing. <laughs> no, I love that. I knew a guy who used to call it power yawning, and I was just like, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And, and there are things like he um, he's kind of listening to the conversation and he wants to sort of say something witty, but he says uh, all um, all lines of communication are jammed with urgent messages from my gut. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just love the idea of the stomach going critical. It's critical, down here. <laughs> she, <laughs> she cannot take it, Captain. She cannot. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've all known that moment of panic and it's perfect it's, uh, yeah. it's a perfect description of that we have all known that it's not just me not just me and this oh, no, no. certifiable character <laughs> no no I'm very aware of what it's like when um, yeah when, when you've had a little bit too much and um, <laughs> there's this bit where he, he's saying uh, uh, he's, he's, he's not sure if anyone if someone's asked him a question so he just says I um, just to like, just in case, which just, I've so seen like people engaged. do. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, no problem. And the thing that, that I do find this as well when I'm when I'm ill, regardless of whether it's hungover or um, just ill in general, um, a certain mental image can just push you over the edge. And for him, it's yeah. the idea of like fried eggs and bacon on a cold plate, like yep. really greasy, and that just. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. That was that was almost spooky because I have a very vivid memory when I was when I was very young, so I wasn't drunk um, to the best of my knowledge, um, but um, of being like really ill and having exactly that image in my head and of it just totally screwing me up. Like whenever mm. I start to feel better, I'd think of that and be like, "Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> game over." <laughs> 
Um, so that they, they start walking home, and Jamie's still chatting to this girl, and um, suddenly Frank realizes he needs to he needs to take a piss, and he can't do it in front of anyone. So he sort of runs away, um, runs around to this sort of petrol station, sort of squats and does it there. And in the meantime, Jamie runs after him, and you can hear. Um, this girl saying, "Oh, just leave him. Let's just sort of go off." And and Jamie's probably Jamie's very loyal. He's like, "No, I can't leave him. He's my friend." And like runs yeah. after. Yeah, I thought that was dead interesting because he's this. All we've seen is this incredibly insular character who's incredibly kind of devil may care about killing people. Just doesn't seem to give a shit. And it's mm. so strange that he's got this apparently functional human relationship where which works on the basis of you know oh he's in trouble i'm going to help him out mm. um i should be interested to see if at any point in the novel that is reciprocated i'm pretty i haven't read ahead i've no idea but <laughs> i'm fairly sure that if the situation does present itself he's just going to end up killing him <laughs> <laughs> but i can dream i can dream yeah it seems that like um from jamie's point of view uh, yeah, he's he's okay, Frank. He's uh, he seems to he's very like good with him and like helps him out, lets him sit on his shoulders um, to sort of watch gigs and stuff. And it's just like two two friends. Maybe I don't know how much Jamie knows about what Frank gets up to on the island. I don't know if he's ever <laughs> had him round. <laughs> hey, yeah. look, at, look at my look at my sacrifice poles and the bomb yeah. circle and all these charred remains of rabbits and yeah, uh, the it? bunker with the with the skull <laughs> and all the wax candles with wasps stuck in them. Maybe Jamie would have a slightly different impression of him if he went right into his house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'd probably be like, leave him, just leave him. I can't, he's my... F- oh, do you know what? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> fine. See you later. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Frank gets to this petrol station, um, urinates, and then the vomit starts, and it's horrendous. Um, he's like Jamie has to literally hold his belts to stop him like collapsing, and then they sort of stagger back to Jamie's house, and um, and his his mum makes him uh, Jamie's mum makes uh, Frank a cup of tea, <laughs> and uh, and that sort of sets him right. Uh, or just about, and he stagg- staggers <laughs> home, and as a uh, and see and see some, he, he sees some like lights in the distance on his way back, and he knows they're reflections off the oil oil rig out at sea. But he says yeah. other people may have assumed that they were UFOs. Yeah. Um, just the thing that struck me about that whole passage, um, the the magical healing properties of tea, which we you know we <laughs> in England know very well about. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very nice. Um, okay, and that, that was the end of that chapter, and brings us on to number five: a bunch of flowers. Um, so we've had a, you know, a bit of a respite there, a bit of a night out, a bit sort of rough and tumble, uh, wholesome fun, if you like, um, mm-hmm. or you know, as wholesome fun as it gets in this book. And uh, <laughs> <coughs> yeah, w- well said, well said. We are operating <laughs> through the looking glass here. I will take any kind of apparently wholesome fun that ends with everybody still alive at the end of it that's wholesome <laughs> yeah. enough for the wasp factory in it <laughs> yeah so um so then frank recounts a bit of a decidedly unwholesome fun that he had um on uh making his second on, on no on his third murder uh he says that he <laughs> second sorry no no third sorry yeah. my bad I, <laughs> I've, I've miscounted the murders there yeah so he had to um he he said he he killed his um 
his what was it? He he killed his cousin um, because he needed to kill someone who was female to redress the balance because he killed two guys. Um, he says there's nothing personal. I'm sure that Fucking would make you feel a lot better. Um, yeah. yeah. Jeez. Well, and also, how does that redress the balance? Like, is it is this whole narrative a set up for him finding a fourth person to kill, a second woman to kill? Mm. Yeah. He. Um, the thing that struck me about this is it's sort of it's a premeditated sort of planned murder done by mm. um, him, age nine. Um, but I suppose, seen as he did a premeditated planned murder, aged five, which shouldn't be too big a surprise. <laughs> Um, right. Fuck. At least this one didn't involve handling snakes. Yeah, yeah. So this involves handling kites. He makes a massive kite. Oh, my God. And um, Sorry. I just... Sorry. What? It's just awful. Like, it's just this whole description <laughs> of this whole process for some yeah. reason. Just, oh, it was fucking awful. Yeah. So he makes a massive kite. Uh, he's got this little cousin called Esmeralda. Takes her out for a walk and to fly some kites. Basically like ties her or loops the kite sort of lines around her around her sort of wrists and then she um, sort of gets pulled off up into the air and floats away Um, over the North Sea so you assume that she's probably just drowned and never seen again Um, so so they I mean this one was the strange thing about these um, all three of them is They've got this sort of strange, almost like cartoonish quality to them as well, haven't they? That makes them feel not really, not not as real as as maybe they could be portrayed in a book, but yeah. um, and maybe that makes it slightly easier to read because um, it may maybe even more horrific if it was like something that seems like a more realistic. Because as, as you said, for the first two, they're quite unrealistic ways of someone killing someone. Yes, that's and this true, is another yeah, yeah. one. Which yeah, which kind of softens the the blow a bit, but it's still, he's just still reading about a kid killing three other kids. Yeah, well, yeah, and just the idea of being dragged off into the sky and kind of a like. To be honest with you, this struck me as the sort of thing that could very easily happen, hmm. but you know, with the kind of safety elements engineered out of it, right? Um, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, it just, it just, just so odd. Like, what I really want to know about the origin of this book, where it was that Ian Banks sat down and went, right, so obviously we're writing a book about a kid killing three people. Um, how are we going to... Did he start with the murders? Did he start with the character? Did he start with how fucked up can I get and still get published without being arrested? Like, what was it all a dare? I've no idea. But this this particular way of putting it out there, like you say, is... is I mean, macabre is the word, isn't it? Hmm. That's what it is. And speaking of macabre, um, Frank says he, he likes the idea um, that she's still floating around just as a skeleton, like round and round the globe. Yeah, he calls her the Flying Dutch Woman. Which yeah. is like, fucking hell. Yeah. Jeez. So, so obviously, three murders in two years, um, people are going to start asking questions. So he goes into sort of this, he, he sort of, fakes this catatonic state where he just doesn't speak to anyone for a while, screams through the night, um, and then sort of slowly starts to drip feed out his story of, you know, um they were flying this kite and she got tangled up and he couldn't he couldn't save her. And it seems to it seems to do the trick. 
He's um he's he's home free. Well, well, well. The, that bit I find more realistic because I can just imagine like because people don't want to entertain the possibility that a child would do this. And mm. at a certain point, even as it all ratchets up, you know, oh yeah, it's definitely yeah, you know, like three murders. It becomes harder to avoid, but it, but in a way, it becomes even harder to admit, doesn't it? Because mm. at that point, it's like, well, I mean, did they? Re- what? Like, mm. this can't possibly be true, can it? And you completely understand why, you know, adults and people in authority kind of reach that point and being like, nah, no, nah, no. Nah. Clearly, I mean, a catatonic state is reasonable here. Thank God it means I don't have to prosecute a child for murder. Yeah, it's like it's always easier to convince someone of something they want to believe. And if you want to believe this, this Frank isn't capable of doing that, then it's not going to be. Right. It's going to be easier for Frank to convince people that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we get sort of sort of move back to uh, the present. It's the next day, and uh, Frank's really hungover. Comes down to the kitchen, and uh, his dad, through the amazing power of smelling farts, can tell that he had <laughs> whiskey and lager um, during the night. And uh, he's, Frank's like, how does he do it? He's like, how many, <laughs> how many drinks are there that you can really say that you'd had? I could probably guess what, you know, um, someone had in the night, just to like, pick his up. You probably had lager. <gasps> how did you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's it, isn't it? You've been for a very boozy night out in a pub in Great Britain. Lager, wasn't it? <laughs> He's a witch! How does he know? <laughs> no, if he'd have guessed the brand, then I'd have been yeah. impressed. Well, that would have been impressive, but I, I don't know. Most of those nights seem to end up on something awful anyway, so they probably you can roll the dice on Fosters at some point, can't you? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was just my student experience, but that, was, that would have been a fairly safe piece of cold reading at that point. <laughs> um, it, it turns out that um, Eric called in the night and uh, Frank, Frank's dad answered, but uh, didn't realise it was Eric, thought it was just Frank drunk, which is, uh, I suppose... Um, kind of an easy mistake to make if you're not really paying attention and you don't really know your sons very well and yeah. you did, and you're not sort of you've kind of put out of your mind the fact that one of your sons has escaped from a you know a mental hospital um, yeah I was going to say that if you are basically what you need in order for that to be realistic is for somebody to be as heroically disconnected from reality as as it turns out Frank's dad is so yeah. cool yeah, um, Eric calls again that night, so nothing really much really happens during this day because he's just Frank's just so hungover he can hardly hard to leave the house. Um, so in the evening, Eric calls again. Um, he basically rings just being a bit of a just just being a bit of a dick, just sort of <laughs> having to play with words and just like saying it's Frank, it's Derek. It, it just it, it's basically a page and a half of like you know. Yeah, a Nonsense. really, really unfunny re-rendering of who's on first. Yeah. Who is it? It's Frank. Why is it Frank? Well, because it's Eric. No, but it's Eric. No, but it's Frank. Why is it Eric? Ah, you're messing me around now. The only yeah. thing, the actually, the only thing I, I thought when reading this is, I'm not sure this is Eric being a dick. Like I have, um, I like one once or twice I've had conversations with people who are really kind of for one reason or another pretty disconnected from what's going on around them Hmm. and the conversation isn't logicless it's actually this it's like (laughs) something gets said and then it gets argued about at interminable length because that's the only thing that can really be acknowledged as true at this particular point in time um 
and it's yeah so i actually read it and i was like kind of oh yeah that's that's depressingly realistic <laughs> um but I, I i like the reading and frankly any reading that i can bring to this which is just like oh yeah this isn't disturbing he's just being a knobhead is fairly uh, fairly comforting at a certain point so yeah well if if the sort of general tenor of the conversation was depressingly realistic hopefully what happens next is comfortingly unrealistic. He's got a dog in the um, in the phone oh, booth with gods. him, <laughs> and uh, Frank realizes this as he's talking because he keeps saying, keeps like moving away from the phone and saying, "Yes, you love me, don't you, my sweet?" And you hear this like, little dog just like yapping, yeah. and then he does something to the dog, but the dog manages to escape and runs off, and Eric's all furious about that. Um, Frank actually hangs up this time and feels quite good about controlling the con- again about power about actually controlling yeah. how the conversation has gone this time only for Eric to ring back and basically smash the phone up on the phone again um, just to just to keep that run going <laughs> doing that. yeah I mean it's mad I, I mean I noticed this that, that this time it's very clearly uh, as well as it appears to be Eric setting dogs on fire because he says things like, you know, he's been accused of this in the past, and then it's, you know, like he says, "You're burning with love for me, aren't you?" and so on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, that was the accusation that made him really angry. Both conversations before, if anybody mentioned the idea that he'd been burning dogs, he'd be like, "How dare you accuse me of that?" You know. Yeah. Um, and I can't, for the life of me, work out what the point is supposed to be about constructing these two characters, both with entertainingly horrifying different like broken psychological states hmm. what the upside what like what the point is of, of them of their sort of dialogue because they're both to me they're both very very made up situations right they're both just like it's like ian banks going what if i was to imagine two people who are dangerously you know out to lunch hmm. and then have them talk to one another Great, I guess. I I just I don't know what the point is, hmm. but Ian Banks is such an entertaining writer that I kind of don't care. Yeah, yeah. Well, I quite like the line where he says um, that with the with the smashing at the phone box, I how the conversations always end. That Eric may well be sort of bringing down the entire sort of Scottish telecoms network one phone box at a time. <laughs> um, I thought that as well. They're going to call him the mad phone box smasher. It'll yeah. be a, a sun front page before you know it. Yeah, but um, Frank says, Frank thinks, well, he, he needs to do something about Eric um, now. And to do so, yeah, I wonder what. To do yeah. so, he, um, he needs to consult the Wasp Factory. And this is this is one of the mysteries that we still are in the dark about at the moment. Just what on earth yeah. is this wasp factory? Um, if it turns out to be a sort of Santa's workshop type place for putting together little wooden wasps, I will be seriously disappointed. <laughs> I'll be seriously surprised too. <laughs> <laughs> it could take a left turn into the whimsical, Matt. You don't know that. <laughs> uh, one one of the mysteries we do find out about. Is um, is revealed in the next chapter, our final one for today, the Skull Grounds, and this is where we find out about what uh, Frank is referring to when he talks about his little accident. So uh, we hear about his mum, Agnes, who um, who's a charmer, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, let's just let's just do the rap sheet for Agnes. So she <laughs> she uh, left uh, left uh, Frank's dad uh, with a small, you know, with a newborn baby. 
and r- ran away, um, only to return a couple of years later, pregnant, heavily pregnant. And when um, when Frank's dad had the temerity to uh, even ask about what on earth's gone on, um, yeah. she's like, "Don't be so possessive over my body. Just uh, just <laughs> just deal with it. Um, I'm going to lie upstairs and ring my little bells on my." on my trousers when I want you to come and help me so just run up and down the stairs ring the bells on my trousers (laughs) (laughs) if you just set out to write a more one note um, image of the sort of stereotypical self important hippie (laughs) uh, right down to using the bells on the hems of her bell bottom trousers (laughs) as a sort of servant's bell for somebody to come and do what she tells them to do Holy crap. Like, did he actually know somebody like this, or did he just really, really hate hippies? You wonder, Ian. <laughs> well, it gets better because she she has the baby. This is good. She, she, she um, demands that she has the baby in the lotus position because that was the way that the baby was conceived. Which has the added bonus of reminding Frank's dad that, uh, that he wasn't there at the time of the conception. Yeah. Jeez. Um, and uh, and and once she has the baby, she sort of dumps that one on Frank's dad, and drives away on a motorbike. And when Frank's dad tries to stop her, she runs him over, and that's basically how he's got the the gammy leg that he's got now. So yeah, Bloody quite the charm. Hell. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I you know I think I think we've all been in fairly dysfunctional romantic relationships at one point in our lives or the other. But I think we can all safely say that unless we've been very unfortunate. Nobody has run us over in order to get away from us, and I, I think I think we can all give thanks for that fact. <laughs> yeah, and um, just before she leaves, she um, she sort of offers some sort of very vague and half-hearted condolences about what's happened to to Frank in the meantime, because what's happened in between this time is as um, so as uh, Agnes is having this baby. Um, Frank is out in the garden because um, he's only he's only like two or three years old at this stage, um, and he keeps apparently he he used to wind up the this old this dog called Old Saul is this like gammy old dog that used to um, used to be owned by the the family, and something happened like he was winding the dog up again and he ended up getting mauled by it and it basically bit his nads off. Oof. And then obviously, and, and then obviously, and so obviously, grim. And then his dad finds the dog and basically strangles it. And as the dog dies, <laughs> the little the little boy's born. Uh, Agnes has the child, okay, and that now. that kid's called Paul. The dog's called Saul. Therefore, um, Frank believes the dog's spirit has been transferred to Paul. And the dog is obviously his mortal enemy because he ripped his nads off. So that's why he had to kill Paul. Well, um, number Sensible, of things right? here, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> well, like, when you put it that way, Frank, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I, how could I ever have judged you? Um, this... I think the thing in the middle of all of this, this is which is obviously completely gruesome and awful, is what is going on with his dad? That whole experience, and he goes, Saul, Paul, Saul, Paul. This one 
is going to go down in history in the big book of dad wit. <laughs> like, what part of him thinks that's an appropriate name to give? I could, but I can almost imagine him, since he's done it, moonwalking away from it. <laughs> Being like, oh, there's not many as sharp as you, Coltham. No, no, no. <laughs> the weird thing is, as well, he kills Sol and then um, does does a little mini autopsy to, to get hold of a souvenir. He basically retrieves Frank's tiny genitalia from the dog's stomach to keep and again I don't know why I yeah (laughs) very much why is my question there in fact I'll be willing to put all discussion of anything else with that character on hold until I find out why he thought that was worth doing I mean like if you're thinking oh we'll get it sewn back on great but obviously not clear well yeah clearly that wasn't the idea hmm um now this moves us on to so so uh, Frank's dad buries Saul somewhere and um, basically Frank wanted to find where Saul was buried so that is why he killed all these little animals by firing them out of the tree and you know, the catapult tree that we heard about in the first chapter um, so he says he fired these animals out to kill them so he could bury them as cover for digging up sort of the ground around the general area where he thought the dog was buried so he could find the dog's skull um, again Naturally. it's just this logic isn't it where like he, he sort of explains it through the book as if like obviously this to this so A to B to Z equals firing <laughs> furry creatures from a catapult um, yeah so 37 um, was the, the final tally of the little animals that he killed and 37 um, 37 and then he, he finally finds this skull um, and, and he feels that he's sort of, sort of got power over the old spirit of Saul now because he killed the, um, the, the boy that the spirit moved into and he's now got the skull of the original dog so he feels much better. Um, his enemy's twice dead, he says. But the, the interesting thing about this as well is um, how the sort of furry animal cover story worked with his dad because he said he's gonna he's trying to he's trying to fire the animals over the water onto the sort of mainland and the the ones that died are sort of casualties in in research and his dad sort of says oh, right okay um and he's not that interested anyway which which begs the question if he's that disinterested why go through the whole elaborate story anyway right um, but yeah well uh, well and also what kind of a parent goes, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. When told, Dad, I've been catapulting small animals across large bodies of water using shuttlecocks. <laughs> oh, yeah, fine, son. Yeah, great. Yeah, no worries. No worries. That's okay. That's all right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, and also the, the weird thing here towards the end of the chapter, <clears throat> he goes through all this stuff that he's done, including the murders, including the animal cruelty, including all the other things that he's been getting up to. And he says, basically, yeah, but I, I don't burn dogs. I mean, that's that's crossing a line. So, um, it's a, burning dogs, harsh, which I think we can all agree with. We're all with you there, Frank. <laughs> Murdering toddlers, fine, apparently. <laughs> it's a it's a messed up world, um, and that that is the um, that is the all the time we've got to spend in said messed up world this week. Um, but next week we're going to be reading till the end of the book. And then seeing what other people, as well as ourselves, 
made of the wasp factory i honestly can't wait for that bit honestly <laughs> usually this is a little bit sort of like i read it i hated it i read it i loved it but honestly what people are going to make out of this i literally do not know i'm almost <laughs> terrified to find people who are like oh yeah i had a childhood a lot like frank <laughs> yeah this brought back so many happy memories yeah I, oh good what's your ip address and your physical address <laughs> <laughs> and your description just sending the police round that's all it is yeah so um, so yeah and, and if you want to get involved in that if you want to send a review in yourself do send us uh, your review to sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com and as ever we will read them out on the podcast but until next time Dave uh, I mean enjoy the rest of the book um, I, I believe I will. Have you got any idea where this could possibly go in the last few chapters? Um, I mean, I almost, like, if it's trying to build to a dramatic or gruesome crescendo, I don't really see where it can go. What does he do? Nuke Edinburgh? Like, <laughs> Well, he's got the cardite, hasn't he? Well, he's yeah, Well, precisely, right. So, I mean, presumably it's going to be something to do with the basement that's made out of a bomb <laughs> and... Presumably, it's so. All right, okay. Predictions. Here we go. I predict Eric comes back to the island, visibly having recently burned a dog. I don't know, like eating a dog leg or something. I don't know. He comes (laughs) back. His dad goes nuts. The policeman comes to the island and discovers that Frank is basically an illegal person. Everything shit gets real. Rabbits fly through the air in (laughs) Sizer's bed, and then somebody drops accidentally drops a cigar on top of all that cordite, and the entire island blows up. The end. (laughs) Would you having 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 set up this pile and pile and pile of uh, of cordite in a basement, as you say, a basically a massive basement bomb? Would you be disappointed if it didn't go off? Is this Chekhov's cordite? No. Yeah, that, well, it fucking well better be Chekhov's <laughs> cordite, right? Because I just if you're going to set up an explosion of that size, I want to see it go off. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it turns out it's like, and the cordite, as it turned out, had been slowly dampened by many years in a Scottish basement and turned out to be very, very inert. The end. <laughs> I will be unimpressed. <laughs> You'll be. Very unimpressed. I'm okay, very unimpressed. Well, well, I'm what's, be... your, what's your prediction? Oh, I can't because I've read it, so oh. I, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I don't sort of, I don't know ev- sort of the details. I kind of forgot some of it, but uh, I know the gist. So I probably best not say myself. Okay, but right, it's going to it's, it's be interesting to see how um, how close you are or not to uh, to how, to what actually happens. But you're right in terms of a crescendo, um, considering what's happened so far. I don't know where you go from here. It feels like only only a basement-sized explosion will do, but we'll see. Yeah. Okay, until next time, Dave. Until next time, Matt.